among our most prized possessions would be those that we would refer to as our relationships, our friends. We made relationships when we were in elementary school, secondary school. Those of our classmates with whom we graduated are perhaps still among our very best friends. Some that we were in college together are also among those very best friends. However, the best relationship that each of us has is a relationship that we sustain in Christ Jesus. Looking at some verses, if you will, please, in Ephesians chapter 5, we look at this relationship that we have with Christ. Looking at Ephesians 5 and verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. This is the relationship that we have with Christ. He's the Savior of the body. Verse 24. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands in everything. Look at verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, with the washing of water by the word, that it might be a glorious, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives another analogy of the relationship that we sustain to him. He speaks of us, of the church, as virgins. He speaks of himself as the bridegroom in that chapter. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, he says that the spirit and the bride say, Come, let him that heareth come, let him that is the thirst come, and whosoever will, let him drink of the water of life freely. But the first part of that passage, he says that the spirit and the bride say, Come. We all understand the relationship between Christ and the church. And that is that the church is feminine, it is that which we as lively stones are built together upon the foundation, Jesus Christ himself, as the head of that body, which is the church. And so there is no mystery about all of that. We certainly understand our spiritual relationship to one another as being the bride, and that Christ is the groom and that Christ is the head of the bride, and he is the savior of the bride and of the body. Now, what of our chances spiritually if we as the bride, as the church, abuse the groom? 
If we do anything as members of the body of Christ, of which we are part of that body, if we do anything to abuse the groom, the head, the Savior, the one that purchased us, what do you think our chances are spiritually? We read last week in another lesson about the passage in the book of Hebrews that states that we can crucify the Son of God afresh, that we can put Him to an open shame. So what we do sometimes is actually crucifying the Son of God. We can hurt and abuse the Son of God. Christ would never hurt the bride. He did everything contrary. He died for it. He allowed himself to be suspended upon that terrible cross in order that the church would become a reality. I've said all of that in these last three or four minutes in order to introduce my lesson. Our lesson today is not about the church, nor about the groom, Christ. Our lesson today is about the parallel that is in Ephesians 5 that Jesus is making. Jesus, you see, made a parallel between the husband and wife relationship and between the bride and the groom, Christ, and his church. Over the past several weeks, there have been a number of things that have been gnawing at me. Things that have been heavy upon my heart. Things that I've wanted to get a sermon to gather about. And so recently with my yellow pad I, at my desk and without any other scriptures of former lessons or anything just to sit down and to make up an outline that is something off the top of my head that comes from my heart. I don't know that you've ever heard a sermon topic by the subject that's on the board because I every sermon's supposed to have a title, so I gave it one. I gave it one entitled Relationships, Being Happy, and Just Simply Doing What's Right. And I think that that will sum up at the end of the lesson. I think that you will see why I am calling it relations, and I should have put the word relationships. That's what I intended to do. I knew the word was a little short there, relations. But relationships, being happy, and doing what's right. The greatest relationship that we sustain, obviously, is the one that we sustain with our God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The relationship that we speak of this morning in our lesson, the fact that we are born again, that we are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. He redeemed us. He saved us. By His blood, He bought us. And as a result of that, we belong to Him. In fact, in 1 Peter 2... I don't remember whether we talked about it, we read it, where it says we are a peculiar people. That's the King James. The word peculiar does not mean strange or ornery or crazy or whatever. The word peculiar in that we mean simply we belong to. Just like the word Christian, that Christian. 
a Floridian. We belong to Florida. An Arkansan, of which I am from. I have been from Arkansas. I belong to Arkansas. A Christian, a Christian, I belong to. The word peculiar in the Greek here in 1 Peter 2 simply means that we belong to. We are the Lord's possession. That's our relationship with Him. A chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A people for God's own possessions. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, you're the temple of God. God gave you this body. He loaned you this tabernacle. We are to care for it. We are to protect it. Now, we understand the question a moment ago. What do we think our chances are if we as the bride of abused the groom, Jesus Christ? Because we know that that would be blasphemous, would it not? The passage that I intend to read later on, I'll look at it right now because it says what I want to emphasize, and that's Titus chapter 2, and I believe it's verse 5. He says that the older women are to teach the younger women to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God not be blasphemed. That's the key of what I want to talk about. Relationships. Being happy. And just doing what's right. Like I said, I don't know if you've ever heard that title. If it is, well, somebody thought of it put it together like I did because this is a brand new lesson for me. Because it's some things off the top of my heart that I want to say. And I think that needs to be said, not only here, but in every congregation across this continent of ours. And inasmuch as we have this relationship, it is the one that is to be so highly respected. Now, the greatest relationship socially that we have, we have a lot of social relationships, and the greatest relationship besides uh, being a Christian, and we'll put that word up here, for lack of a better word, and that's the home. Now, the home is the greatest social relationship. Oh, we are a social people. We get together. We sometimes have cookouts together, picnics together. We go to Disney together. We do a lot of things together. Various people do that here. Those are social relationships. And they have their place. They're important. But the very highest of social relationships is the home. It's the home relationship. I do not speak nearly enough on it, I'm sure, I, even though some of you may think I talk too much on it. I don't think you hardly can. Not in today's society. In Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we see that the home is a divine institution, that it is ordained of God, it is divinely arranged, God arranged it, I mean, and therefore man is not to tamper with God arrangements. We all need friends. We all want friends. 
At very early ages, I had my friends. At the young age of 16, I developed my very best friend. I knew that friend and that person became my very dearest friend for four years. She would marry me at that point and we would live together beginning or starting as of today for 35 years. To be married to my very dearest friend. I realize I am extremely fortunate. I realize that there are many people that do not have and are not blessed with the happiness that I have. And I, I do not use this personal illustration in any way to be braggadocious, God forbid. I was very fortunate to be in a, in a home that was very secure, very loving and caring. I'm very fortunate that my folks decided to move to another town 12 miles away where the church was stronger, where there were Christian young people, where Jerry could have some young people with whom to associate with one of whom would be a young lady that would later be my bride. And so, this was to be a relationship as a result of a move, a good move, a providential move, no doubt, as far as I can see. And that has brought genuine and sincere happiness all the days of these 35 or plus years that I have had the privilege to know and to be a part of my wife's life. Since being married, of course, is a divine and ordained arrangement of God, it is something that must be treated as such. It must be treated with the highest of respect. You cannot abuse it and continue to have that happiness, which is the second part of this lesson. Most of us form the relationship of husband and wife. But many people never achieve the complete happiness that needs to go with that. But even though we do not have the complete happiness that may go with that, we can do the third part, and that's just simply doing what's right. We all do that. Every one of us. There are a good many visitors here this morning, some that I've met for the very first time, and I do not want you to think that this lesson is negative. It is intended to be positive. It is intended to be preventive. It is intended to be reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. As Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. You do it with diligence. You be instant in it. There is no out of season or in season. You just do it. Whether folks like it or whether they don't like it. And so you young people that are soon to be students at FC and others that may be in our audience don't think Sethner is a bad place. As far as I am concerned, it's one of the very finest in the country anywhere bar none. But there are some things that I don't understand. I do know in our short, short few years in which we've been gathered together as a group, as, a, as the Sethner congregation, 
I do know that there have been some divorces. Largely simply because that married non-Christians, as they look back upon it, they view that now and they realize what a mistake they made. There have been divorces. Some are not with us. While there have been some that have not divorced, and there have been three or four of those that do not enter into what I'm talking, going to be talking about. But there have been a number of you that have had marital problems. Some that are no longer here at all either. That have had problems maritally. Simply not getting along. Simply not being happy. This yah-yahing that goes on bickering from one to the other in front of the children, in front of neighbors, in front of brethren. I started one day this here a few days ago to count up in my mind going back over five years ago and I run out of fingers and thumbs very quickly on one hand. I started on the other hand and I had a thumb left. I had a thumb left. That means we've got to and there are others that need to be added to that. But I'm talking about that need professional counseling. I'm talking about families that have gone to counselors of whom I have dealt with, many of them, and have encouraged you because I'm limited. I have the word I think I know what the problems are. But I just don't know how to put it in your language to maybe be objective and say, well, you're the fault or you're at fault or both of you at fault or whatever. There are professional people that do that. And so I've tried to counsel various ones of you in a loving and a caring way to go to these individuals. And so there have been eight, nine, maybe ten that have done that. And still maybe another couple or two that I know about that needs to go. Now I'm simply asking the question, what's wrong? What's wrong? I don't hear of this at other places. I came here from Chiefland and I've got two or three couples up there that probably need counseling. I left there from Plant City and for over 10 years and I don't know of anybody that ever, you know, had to do anything like that. Not that that's a put down and not, and I don't want to appear that you should never do that. In fact, I've been the one to encourage you to do it. And there are others perhaps that need to do it. I'm just asking the question, why? Why is this necessary? Why is it that folks are not being happy in these relationships? And why is it that we're turning out children that are growing up to be like mother and daddy also that are going to have the same problem? We're living in that generation where divorce equals the amount of people that are getting married. Don't any of you sit there and say, well, Jerry is shooting directly at me. You forget that, brother and friend. This lesson is prevenient. There are some with whom I cannot help. 
There are some probably that may not be helped. I don't know. I hope it's not hopeless. And since there are several of you, then hopefully you'll realize that I'm not shooting from the hip and taking advantage with a pot shot at you. But I know one thing, I sure am mighty appreciative of my my brother Flick Covington. Held a meeting up there a few years ago and had a meal with Flick and I knew what kind of work he was in and I knew that he helped brethren and that he was very reasonable if he charged anything at all. And, and so I've sent, not just from here, but from other places, various brethren to him. And various ones of you have, have been objective and open-minded enough to go. And I hope that others that need the situation will go. It's obvious that there are some who have been helped and helped tremendously. And maybe some did not even know and are aware that I knew that you have gone or been to others. So the greatest relationship that I know about is the church of the living God and our relationships in that. Now I want to speak of mistakes. Mistakes in marriage. Because obviously if we can prevent something, that's the very best deal to follow it. I was taught that on the farm very early. That if you've got a fence out there that's, that's got big holes underneath it that the sow is going to probably get under, and then you're going to have to chase the sow out of the farmer's field and pay the farmer for the damage, the very best thing to do is just go and fix the hole. And the sow won't get out. Now that's the kind of simple common sense logic that makes sense to me. So there are some mistakes that we can profit from. In the Bible, in Matthew chapter 14, it talks about John the Baptist preaching to King Herod. And said, King Herod, you're married to a woman that you don't have any business being married with. So here is a relationship of an adulterous marriage relationship. That's a mistake. Another mistake is when a couple gets so carried away in their petting and courting <clears throat> that they commit adultery. And that their sin finds them out. And that there is a child that comes out of this Unlawful relationship. You don't just marry that person just because he happens to be the father of your child. When love does not exist, you don't marry that individual. When people are not matched up, when two people simply are, are just not compatible, they come from two different parts of the world. They've eaten two different kinds of food. They have spoken different kinds of languages. Their customs, their traditions, their traits, their mannerisms, they are completely opposites. They simply are not compatible. You shouldn't marry that person, should you? You should not marry a person when they're not a Christian. That's a mistake. 
You should not marry a person because they are just beautiful outwardly, just the prettiest thing you ever set your eyes on. I know of a person right now that when I was a boy, I thought that that was the most beautiful, glamorous, gorgeous woman that ever put on a pair of high heel shoes. When she walked across, I tell you, everybody's eyes looked at her beauty. That woman now is old. She is wrinkled up more than most women are entitled to be wrinkled up to. She's got, she just simply got a lot that, that's, you know, you would not be desirable. And she can't help that either. That's just the way that life is. But you don't marry for beauty because see that all changes. You don't marry for money. Solomon tells us about all of that. He said it's all folly. It's all vexation of the spirit. Now of this list of things that I've given you, and I've given you six, seven, or eight mistakes, there's only one of them that is justifiable in the sight of God. If you go ahead and marry that person regardless, there's only one of them that God says, break it up. John 14 is that, or Matthew 14 is that passage when, when King Herod knew that he had the wrong woman, that he was living in an adulterous relationship. If you marry for beauty and she turns out to be whatever later on, that's what the marriage vow said, for better or for worse. If the person turns out later not to have any money, that's what your marriage vow said. On thee I bestow all my goods, or what little, or whatever. It's just a part of it. And so there is only one when we have made the mistakes. My point is, you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with it. You have made the choice. And what God joined together, let not man put asunder. That's his word. You were the one that made the choice. As we've heard the expression many years, you made your bed, now you must lie in it. You were the one that made your choice. You made the mistake. To young people, to those of you that are sitting here that I am hoping to reach to prevent these things, Date Christians. That doesn't always mean that you're going to have a happy marriage. But those that have married non-Christians, every person that I've ever talked with that's been married for very long to a non-Christian that never converted them, they have all told me one by one, Jerry, if we had it to do over again, we'd never marry a non-Christian. And the way you get around marrying a non-Christian, you don't date them. Because I have noticed that whoever you wind up dating, eventually you wind up marrying one of those guys, don't you? If you don't date them, there's not a temptation for them to ask you to marry them, to fall in love, and, and so you remove that temptation. You just don't date non-Christians. And then I'll tell you another thing. 
You don't do all of this just in a little short span of time. A long courtship is what is highly recommended. And when I say a long courtship for you young people, I'm not talking about one year at Florida College. And fall head over heels with love and marry and, and happiness is going to be blessed forevermore. Get to know one another. And I think that's the secret of, of our 35 years of happiness. That we had several years of getting to know one another. Of being together. Now, I know there are exceptions. I have known people that, that knew from the time that they got acquainted and married, it was like 17 days. Such a situation at Plant City. They'll tell you that, don't use us for an example, they made it and are a happy couple and some of my best friends. But that's the exception. A long courtship gives you the opportunity to find out, is this the person that I want to sit across the table from and to be with the rest of my life? Is this the person that I want to share the same bedroom with? Is this the same, is this the person that I want to get in an automobile and travel all the way across the country 3,000 miles? Is this the person? And when you have answered those questions over a period of of years, then maybe you will not be making those mistakes. Look at another point of this lesson. And that's the subject of separation. And I've heard this until I'm sick of it. I just get plum nauseated. I guess because in the last year or so I've had some physical problems and I'm just not what I used to be in dealing with things. I can't handle it like I used to. It just tears me up. When I hear this one or that one saying, I'm leaving. I'm not going to live with this person anymore. You know what I tell folks? I say, well, what do you want to sin for to do that? Don't you know that sin? Don't you know that you're doing exactly what you promised God back yonder before God and before witnesses and the vows that you would never do? I will be with you through whatever, through good or bad or rich or poor, it doesn't matter, we're going to make it. Did you not say that? Did you lie? Did you mean what you said? Do our vows mean anything? They better. They better. Because we're talking to Jehovah God. That the word of God be not blasphemed, he said. You've got to do this. That you do not go against my word. That's why it's heavy upon me. It's because I have heard it and I have heard it and I'm tired of hearing it. I want brethren to straighten their lives up. I want them simply, as the subject says, do what's right. You may not be happy. 
You may have made a mistake. That's water under the bridge. You can't suck that back up the river. You have made your choice. Young people, you have not made your choice. But listen wisely and with a good head because one day you will make a choice. Don't let it be a mistake. For you're going to be with somebody a long time. Let it be with happiness. You do not want to go to hell. Don't live in a hell on this earth. And you don't have to. But whatever you do, do what's right. Do what's right. In 1 Corinthians 7, he speaks of separation one time. And he talks about it when your mate is not a Christian. When your mate is not a Christian, and you are having great difficulties because of the persecution that you're having with this mate. And he says, only by consent and with fasting and prayer and he says you do it for just a short time lest Satan tempt you in this absence. The rest of the time, no separation. My wife and I are separated right now because we've got a new grandchild. And out of urgency, she is up there caring for our daughter that had the C-section and is just home from the hospital and will be up there for a few more days. But that's a separation, obviously, that's understandable and excusable by God and by brethren. All other separations are an insult, even to you and to your mate. You're doing more than airing your dirty laundry. You're bringing everything out in public that I simply can't cope that I'm going to cop out. Look at what the consequences are to separation. You're damaging your influence for the future and your mates. People everywhere know they got problems. Got some problems. And the children, what about the children? I know through the years past that different children have come to me and said, Brother Jerry, my mom and daddy talk about separation, and I just can't handle it. And you know my heart goes out to them, the little ones. What kind of parents are they going to be? Are you as parents the right kind of examples to them for them to be good husbands and wives themselves? Whatever we are as husbands and wives, you can pretty well nail it down that that's what the youngins are going to be. So children are caught in the middle. They're being affected. Their schoolwork is affected. A lot of things are affected. You just cannot have something as serious as this without somebody getting hurt big time. So separation is not a solution. What is the solution? 
for the most part. I've always said it. I think for the most part, the thrust of the answer is upon those of us as men, as husbands. But you know, the husbands don't usually get angry at me. It's when I get on the women's side of it that regardless of what I'm saying right now, they don't listen to that. They get angry because of the other side of the coat. But if we as husbands do the God-given bidding that God requires of us, I really don't think we're going to have a great deal of problems in the home. 1 Peter 3 and 7, that we as husbands are to live with them according to knowledge. It takes a great deal of knowledge. We're to simply do what's right. That's why I titled the lesson like I did. Just simply do what's right. Do the right thing. We know right from wrong. Are we doing the right thing by our wife? Are we being considerate toward our wife? Are we heaping praise upon her? Are we grateful to her? Do we make life easy for her? Some simply are not ready to be husbands when they marry. Some are selfish. If you've got a selfish 18-year-old or 28-year-old, they probably are going to be a selfish husband when they're 19 or when they're 29. And see, that's your choice. That's why you need to deal with it for a long while and find out about this man that I'm going to live with the rest of my life. If he is selfish and insolent, and I can't hardly stand him, but I'm going to marry him anyway. And I have coaxed several individuals not to get married through my years. That I didn't think that they were compatible, but they'd go ahead and get married anyway. There are some that are not mature enough to be husbands. There are some that cannot handle money. And that's one of the biggest reasons for divorce right to this day. Not sexual problems. It leads to other things. But a failure to know how to handle money. Getting in trouble, and that brings on other stresses, other problems, as a result of this. Some husbands are mama's boys, tied to the apron strings. You know whether or not they are before you married them, didn't you? I believe that I could tell one. The Bible says that a man is to leave father and mother. He's to cleave to his wife. And if he is a mama's boy and he's going to go back to the parents and seek out their wisdom and, and instead of talking to you about it, probably that's not going to change a lot just because the preacher has had some marriage vows exchanged. The Bible says to leave father and mother and cleave. The word cleave is the same word we get our word cement or glue. It's to be a cleavage. It's to be a uniting. And it applies to both, husband and wife. The husband in Ephesians 5.23 is to be the head of the house. And if you are not equipped for the leadership role to be the head of the house, you're not ready to be a husband. And most of the problems that I've had across the country in preaching the gospel have been with situations 
where men have not been the heads of their house, and I don't have that much problem with the men, I have the problem with their wives. One or two women in every congregation that I've ever gone have dished out plenty of problems over this. Luckily, through the years, the brethren have all stood with me. And I suppose that some of the best work that I did at various congregations was to weed out those that need to be somewhere else. And I could give several congregations as an example in years past where they simply are not going to do what's right. They're not going to be in submission to their husbands. They're dominant women. They do not want to do certain things. They're not going to do certain things. And so as husbands, this is expressed by love. It's expressed by kindness. It's expressed by humility. It's, by, it's expressed by consideration. It is not expressed as a dictator. Being head of the house is not expressed as a dictator. That's a big difference. It denotes a leadership role, much the same way as elders of the body of Christ. As shepherds, as leaders, as individuals, by example, and kindness and love. A husband is to provide for her needs. 1 Timothy 5 and 8. You vowed that, that you would provide for her needs. <clears throat> for rich you are for poor, all my goods I on thee bestow. And I'm not sitting in judgment of some of you that may do this. I don't know who does and who does not. But through the years, I've heard of various brethren. Well, she's not going to spend my money. She can spend her own. She can have her own bank account. She can drive her own car. She can do her own thing. I don't understand that kind of talk. Now, I realize in some situations, there may be good judgment for having different bank accounts. And having my this and his that and hers that, I just don't understand. Because I wasn't raised like that and our situation is like that. What's mine is, is yours and yours is mine and uh, we're one flesh and we do things together. If there's a dollar in the bank, then it's your dollar if you need it before I do. That's just the way that, that I think things need to work. And then we don't have any pulling here and there as to mine or who's going to spend the money for the groceries this week and who's going to pay for the insurance and who's going to do what. Some husband, where they have one account, he'll only give her a small amount of money to, to take care of the house, a very small amount. A lot of situations where husbands simply are not living up to the marriage vows and are not doing the right thing by their wives. And then in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, I just simply conclude, he truly loves his wife. He loves his wife as his own body, as himself. He nourishes and cherishes her as he does himself. He truly loves her. It's a sacrificial love like Christ did for the church. That's why I started with that illustration in the beginning. And brethren, when this exists from the husband, I say there are but few problems in that home. I am convinced that when we as husbands treat our wives with dignity and respect and love, esteem, consideration, 
and do all those little things that they like. Like cards, flowers, gifts. Doesn't just have to be at, a, at her birthday. And maybe you even forget that. Maybe it doesn't mean anything to you. That's part of the problem. Maybe the anniversary didn't mean anything to you. That's part of your problem. Maybe these gifts don't mean anything to you. That's part of your problem. But regardless of what the problem is and whether you're happy with it or not, you are going to have to do what's right. You're the one that's being hurt. You're the one that's being neglected. But you've got to do what's right. <clears throat> because heaven depends on it. Your children depend on it. And as I emphasize for the most part, when husbands do their part, then I believe that we're going to have a minimum of problems on the flip side of it with the wives. And I'll cover this very quickly. She too must leave a relationship. It's a big change for both people. They're leaving mother and daddy. She is to be in subjection. God said this in Genesis 3. Jesus further said it in Matthew 19 and in Ephesians 5. She is to be in, accept, in subjection, and there's only one exception. Acts 5.29 says when it contradicts God's law. When something is in conflict with God's law, then you don't do it. I don't care who the man is. A husband, a wife, an elder, preacher, the man at the job, your boss, it doesn't matter. When they're asking you to conflict with God's law, you put your foot down, you're convicted, and simply don't do it. You're even in submission to them according to 1 Corinthians 17, 13, when he's an unbeliever. When he's not even a Christian. He's your husband. You selected him. Now this commandment is not degrading. It's not demeaning. If so, then it is regarding Christ and the church, with the church being in subjection to Christ. Is that degrading? Is that demeaning? When we've got authority over us? No. Jesus said that's parallel. Jesus said that's what I'm talking about. This is a great mystery. Christ and the church and the husband and the wife, but they're parallel. She is to be a true helpmate, compatible, a helper, a keeper at home. One.